0: and welcome to BCL Coast to Coast, the official podcast of the Basketball Champions League. My name is Austin Green and here with me, as he is every week, is David Hein over in Germany. Dave, how are you doing? Hope you're staying safe over there.
1: Yes, uh, doing my part. Uh, Going out of the house
0: very, very rarely and uh, doing a proper social distancing. (laughs) Good job. Good job. Yeah, we are as well here And we have some news to talk about this week. The BCL had been suspended indefinitely due to the coronavirus, but there has been a resolution reached by the clubs. This season will be suspended now until the end of September, and then we will have a Final 8 single-game knockout competition at the end of September and beginning of October to decide the 2020 champion... And then we'll go right into the 2020-2021 BCL season. And then the two round of 16 series that had not been decided yet, those two series will be featured as play-in games to the final eight tournament. So that's Dijon versus Nizni and Tenerife versus Ostend. Those games will happen to get the final two participants, and then we'll have the final eight. Uh, September thirtieth through October fourth, Dave. What what did you think about the BCL's decision to finish out the season this way with the final eight? I think in general
1: it was a good decision. Um, I'm I'm happy that I'm happy that we will have a 2019 2020 season champion. Uh, I'm also happy that the two unfinished series, uh, will be finished as well. Uh, I, 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 you know, there was talk about how to deal with that. You know, do you go, uh, uh, you know, as if it was a two leg thing and you really can't do that. I don't even have have to top my head who would have gone through in those, uh, if that had been the case, but you really can't do that. Um and so I'm I'm happy that they resolved that which totally makes sense as a play in game um and also right you know right before a, fi- a final 8 uh and also that it's uh will be relatively close to the start of a normal season uh the 2020 2021 season um, that's gonna be kind of hard to say these times now. 2021, 2020, 2021 season. <laughs> um, but, uh, in, in general, and also, uh, you know, we talked to Deacon and one of the points he makes, uh, which, uh, is, you, you know, if you, you, you think about the Copa del Rey and you have eight teams on one weekend, uh, in, in, in one city and you have all the fans that come there, uh, I think that's gonna be really, uh, a fantastic atmosphere. If everything's okay by then, and 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 fans can come to games, uh, and that's a big if. Uh, but uh, I I I I think there's a lot to be let's say satisfied, or you know, or you know that 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 it's that has been resolved this way. Um, you know, you hate to to just call it off and not have a a champion, you've given enough time, you know, if, if the situation, uh, is still, you know, you know, really bad, you know, you can, you can still act, but, you know, you've given enough time, uh, to, to let the, the virus kind of, uh, the whole situation kind of play out. So uh, there's a lot, the only, the one thing that you kind of, kind of have to, you know, be a little bit like, ah, oh, shucks, uh, is that, you know, some of these teams this is another point we talk about with Deacon, but that, uh, some of the teams, uh, will change. Um, and, uh, but it, you know, th- th- I think there's a lot of good, uh, that came out of this, uh, decision. I-, I hope I didn't steal all, uh, all of the thunder, but I'm sure you came you have a couple of opinions as well.
0: Yeah, no, I, in, in general, I agree, you know, there was no perfect option, I think this is a good solution to, you know, still have an event that's going to be really cool. A lot of people are going to be excited about it. Um, even, if, you know, if there are fans, it's going to be awesome. If there aren't fans, it's still great just to be able to watch competitive basketball on TV that'll be great. Um so yeah, I think I think it was the right move and we'll have more on this decision next week. We'll have a little more details uh at that point and and so yeah, we'll talk about this a little bit more next week with the BCL going to the final 8 September 30th through October 4th a single elimination knockout competition to decide the winner of this season's BCL. Coming up next on the podcast, we have our conversation with Deacon Lloyd-Smith, the great writer from the official website, championsleague.basketball. We're talking about the 2018 Final Four and reliving that experience. Ike beat Monaco in Athens in the 2018 Final Four. It was the second year of the BCL. Deacon was there in person in Athens working for the website at the time. So it was fun to watch this game again on YouTube on the Champions League YouTube page and talk to him about it. So stay tuned for that. Of course, follow the Champions League on Twitter and Instagram at BasketballCL. Go to the official YouTube page to watch the classic games as well as all of the games from this year's season. And go to the official website, championsleague.basketball, uh, for some articles that will be going up throughout the offseason. All right, coming up next, we have our conversation with Deacon Lloyd Smith about Ike beating Monaco in the 2018 final.
2: That's exactly it. That's what they did so well in the first quarter against (laughs) Murtia.
1: All right, so on the show this week, we have Deacon Lloyd-Smeeth from the BCL. Uh, you've read plenty of his stuff. Uh, Deacon, uh, welcome back to the show.
2: Dave, good to, good to hear from you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Um,
1: so I guess, I guess let's first start off with, with the actual news that we do have um, with, uh, with the BCL, with uh, their decision to um, have the final eight – uh, in late September uh, of course with the winners of the Tenerife Ostenda uh, Ostend and Dijon uh, Nizni Novgorod um, of those playoffs as the final two eight teams in a uh, as yet undetermined location um, obviously it's it's saving the end of the Uh, 2019 2020 season uh maybe just your thoughts on 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 the bcl's decision to to go that route
2: well i think my first thought is that by the time we get to september everybody's going to be hanging for some live basketball and for for some live sport so it's something to um to look forward to so when you look at what the event will be if you you know the previous bcl final fours have all been incredible as events and um if you look at what a final four but with eight teams um eight different sets of fans assuming that they're going to be safe to be there um in one city it's going to be um it's going to be one big party really and it's going to be an incredible event to look forward to um and starting the season that way Eventually, it's interesting. It's like a it's a, a finish and a and a start at the same time, which will be interesting to see how teams attack it. Um, and the, the last thing that makes that that jumps out to me is the incentive for the those teams and the reward for those teams for making it to the 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 quarterfinals this time is that they could potentially start their season with that prize money, and that could make a big difference to their season twenty twenty one
1: yeah we'll we'll actually come back to the nineteen twenty season um uh, in a little bit. one of the reasons that we wanted to also have you on was because uh just like jeff Taylor last week um the where we talked about the inaugural p c l season the BCL on on their YouTube channel has has uh, released uh, re-released uh, um edited with no with no breaks have to have to really actually kind of uh, enjoy that um the classic games uh looking at the 2017 18 final 4 which took place in Athens which Ike won uh, I guess kind of just to kind of go back uh, for for those who might not remember the season that well, just kind of a little bit of background on that year. Monaco uh, started uh, went thirteen and one in their in their regular season. They reached the final. Um, Ike uh, was uh, eight and six. Uh, both of them won their domestic cups that year. And then you had Ludwigsburg from Germany, and and Ucam uh, Murcia. Um, maybe uh Ikes uh Mandy Harris uh, took home the MVP maybe what do you remember most about that regular season and the run-up to the final four
2: um what do I remember most from the regular season I remember how dominant Monaco were that season um from the start to the end of the regular season that Monaco team was just way too talented or way too good defensively and just um an absolute monster for most of the regular season um i remember uh i remember ike just essentially stealing their way into the playoffs and then stealing their way through the playoffs to get there and at no point in the season did Ike look like a champion until the final and that was the that was my biggest memory of that team is that they had talent and adding Kevin Punter made a huge difference for them, and Delroy James also was a huge difference for them. But they they didn't look like the the team that was going to win it until the, the the very final. Even the semi final against Murthy, they 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 were shaky. That final four, as well as an event, was just a, a one a once in a lifetime experience. I think really.
1: Maybe just just kind of touch on, on on Ike, just because they were the champion that year, um, and you you mentioned they kind of stole their way in. You know they needed a whatever it was last five eight second uh, three pointer from from Sakota uh, to to beat uh, Bayroy to get into a four way tie um, uh, on the final game day of the regular season to to get to the to get into the playoffs, and then you had uh, punters you know pretty much miracle three um, to beat Nimbrook uh, one eighty one one eighty one one eighty uh in the round of 16 um you know you, you know you kind of mentioned that they that they you know they didn't even really look like a champion um did you think that this was a team that 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 uh if if everything kind of fell right that they could uh, you know now now they're also starting to get ha- you know have lady luck on their side as well
2: honestly um i you no know, i remember asking Kevin Punter about that that three and he and he said he called bank and he said he was um fully committed to it. Um, I think that t- as a team they they probably believed that they were they were timing it right. I don't think, don't know how many people can honestly say hand on heart that they were looking at Ike and saying that they were going to win it. The the only thing that was on their side was history. So it was the anniversary the fiftieth anniversary I think of the first time um they'd won a European competition. Um and there was the momentum of that. But in terms of if you actually analyze the way the team was playing, especially with the with the miracles to get through and then Nimbuk in the playoffs as well, I, I don't think anybody really thought this is a team that is, is building to being a champion. But the, the way they performed in the final was absolutely the performance of a champion.
0: Yeah, Deacon, so going into the Final Four, do you remember uh, who you thought, the favourite was and which two teams you expected to meet in the final? Uh, you, you know, you mentioned Monaco was dominant during the regular season. Uh, did you expect them to maybe win at all?
2: So, I, I remember before the final four and obviously you write about the games and you look at what's going to happen and I think you had Ludwigsburg versus Monaco which was basically a defensive battle so they had, you know, John Patrick teams always press and they always play great defence and they're very physical um, and Monaco was was it also like a very powerful defensive team? But I just think uh, losing Justin Sears before the game against Monaco, um, I had Monaco winning that game, and they did. They they delivered, and it was close for three quarters, but Ludwigs were kind of run out of steam at the end there. Um, and Ike versus Murthy, I I had I thought Ike home court would get to the final, um, and up until the day before the final, I was expecting Monaco to win it. And then it just you you could just feel it in the in the city. You could feel it in the arena and amongst the fans. Is that suddenly Ike was just expecting to win it? And I think also, you know, when you when you're at the final four and you're covering these events and you have the the privilege of seeing the teams preparing and you can watch a little bit of some of the practices and you can see the the way that the teams are carrying themselves. I remember looking at Monaco and they were the most laid back team I've ever seen. They were just super relaxed. You know, the practice environments were, uh, you know, as you would expect, walking pace, but everybody was so laid back. And Ike just had a a slightly different look in their eye, a little bit more focus and a little bit more expectation that they were going to get it done.
0: Nice. Yeah. And you mentioned kind of feeling it in the air a little bit. Uh, Let's talk about the atmosphere there in Athens. So I've I've been to that arena for an Ike game in the BCL uh, last year. I was at the round of 16 game against Pauk when they clinched it. And that was amazing. And then this obviously would be a next level situation being a a championship game, a final four environment. Uh, Jeff, on the broadcast, he described it as a deafening roar during the opening tip. And then that first possession, you have the Mike Green pick and roll bounce pass to Vince Hunter for that huge dunk, and the crowd just absolutely explodes. Uh, what what do you remember, just kind of in that moment? What was it like being there for that? I
2: mean, the first thing I remember is the weather. So before that, before the final, the weather was awful, and um, and it was it was almost like a theatrical moment, you know, the the, the storm brewing, and then. Um, the fans just started piling into the arena. We were all sort of guessing before the, before the final, how many people were going to be in there. We knew it was going to be sold out, but we didn't know how packed it would be. And when you, when you start seeing people almost hanging off rafters, almost, you know, climbing up to the very top just to be in there. And my my other memory is I was there in there early and I was talking to, um, one of the organizers of the fan groups, the Ike fan groups, and he, he had the biggest smile on his face from from every time he was in the arena, and he was just telling me that I was going to see something I'd never seen before, and I had no doubt that, that he was he was telling me the truth. Um, you know, coming from England, where we have football culture, and I've been to the, you know, I'm a Tottenham fan, and I've been in the Park Lane End, which is used to be known as a very loud place to watch football, and I've never heard anything like that in my life. That was something I've never seen or never heard. Um and, and I'll be surprised if I do again, you know, the flares inside and the, the noise at the starting tip, like you said. But it didn't stop. Relentless the entire game, it never stopped.
0: Yeah. Uh so going so going back when when they posted the game uh when the B C L posted it on YouTube this week as a as a classic game for people to go and re watch, uh did you was there anything that you didn't remember or that you didn't notice live that you've kind of picked up on again?
2: I wouldn't say so. Actually, like it was good to bring back memories, um, and to rewatch the game. But the, the way I um I remember writing the breakdown after the game, and, and most of that stayed true, which was interesting to watch again. Just going back through the game, I, I remember um I remember I going to Mike Green in the post early in the in the game. And just that stuck out to me at the time, and it it did again. What rewatching it and the fact that Mike Green went on and had nineteen, and which was unusual for him that season in terms of, you know, being the main scorer on the team wasn't really his his role on that team. The fact that he had nineteen in the final and won Finals MVP because they 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 went to him and targeted DJ Cooper as well as a as a as a battle they wanted to win. Um and Manny Harris not playing the role of the scorer even though he'd been the mvp that season and picking up trash points on the offensive glass just to find other ways in any, any way that he could to help the team win Things yeah like that. and
0: th- the other the other thing that i thought was really interesting um that i hadn't thought of before but just seeing these recent final fours being posted back to back like this uh so last week i watched Tenerife versus Banvit, that game is 63-59 final score. And then this year, one year later, you have 100-94 to 94 in the final. Uh, what, what do you remember about those two teams and were you expecting just kind of like that pace and that that high of a score?
2: Absolutely not. I mean, I think um, I haven't double-checked this, but I would I, I say with 99% confidence that nobody else scored 100 against Monaco that season. Um. And you know to get to get that higher score, and Monaco didn't turn the ball over a lot, um, and and neither did Ike. I mean I, Ike turned the ball over more, but usually if you get really high pace games like that, you're expecting a lot of a lot of turnovers and not so many offensive rebounds. But there was there was not a high turnover game, so to get that kind of score, you know, it was just all about people putting you know scoring every time down the floor. And Monaco, for a team that was so defensively dominant, the defense just wasn't there the entire game, I think.
1: Ike, you know, really, literally from the opening tip, um, you know, they went right away to Hunter with the big dunk. Uh, you know, you, you you mentioned that Green really kind of started scoring. They really were, were finding ways to... to to get Hunter going as well. Um, just with the, I think, if I'm not mistaken, they scored 20, 29 in the first quarter. Just maybe what did you think when you saw, you know, Ike really going at it, really, uh, you know, throwing down the hammer early uh, at the offensive
2: end? Uh, I think, as Austin says, from that first, the first play of the game, mm-hmm. it was almost, uh, it was almost written already. You could see that one team had come out ready to, to win the game. And never had a doubt in their mind that they were going to. And I think it it, it rocked Monaco and it, it shook them a little bit. I mean, a team that good will come back and Gladion had a big game and hit some big shots trying to chase the game. But um, confidence wise and momentum wise, uh, I never looked like it was gonna it was gonna go any other direction. And you know, if you if you look back at it and you realize that Shakota and and Punter had fifteen each or 15-16 each in both games. Um Manny Harris was was finding other ways to score and Mike Green stepping up and Delroy James was also huge in the final. Um it was a team at that stage that was just built to win. I mean, and even Vince Hunter went on to be an MVP candidate the season afterwards. I don't think he was as big of a player that year as he became afterwards because of that.
1: You, you mentioned the Gladiator 3s hit back, uh, you know, consecutive 3s and um, after uh, Ike. Monaco kind of hung around, cut it to 1, and then uh, Ike pushed it back out to 9. Uh, and then it was uh, a 3-point game after 3 quarters. Your thoughts going into the 4th quarter after after Gladiator kind of, you know, brought them back? And uh, did you think that uh, the 4th quarter could maybe – Monaco could get it?
2: Um. I remember thinking that they weren't getting stops. Um, you know, they had some weapons. They had Kikannovich that was was also finding a bit a bit of rhythm too. Um, but without Chris Evans and Gerald Robinson really um, being major factors, it was always still tough to see them scoring enough because they weren't getting stops. And I think I think my big memory of that final was was. Um, Delroy James blocking a DJ Cooper step back right at the end there. When when it, when it Monaco needed a, a, a bucket right at the end there, um, I'm not sure that was the shot that they needed to get. And Delroy James obviously made a huge play and blocked it blocked the step back jumper. And that was kind of it. Yeah. That was the end I, of the game.
0: Yeah, I think for me, it was really interesting that the fourth quarter kind of seemed like two different quarters in itself. So there was the first half, there was like the first five minutes where they build the lead back up to double digits after uh, Gladier hit those threes. And then I think you see kind of like the legend of Kevin Punter coming through a little bit where he hit that four-point play with that corner three, and then he hit another three after that. And that really felt like a big kind of a rival moment for him, especially after he hit big shots earlier in the season. And then, uh, and, and it had 16 in the semis. Like you said, it kind of felt like, oh, okay, like this guy is, is, you know, this is what he does. Um, and then Hunter had those two huge blocks and Sakota was hitting some shots and it looked like Ike were in control. And then they just had like such an epic and weird meltdown that like like, what, what did, uh, what were you thinking? So there was a, so gladier hit a three around like the five minute mark to cut it down to nine. And then with a little over a minute left, Cooper made a three to cut the lead from 96 to 90. And the security came down to the court and stood on the baseline, like right on the court. Uh, what, What did you think about that scene? Like in the moment where, you know, there's still a minute left six-point game, Monaco, maybe have a miracle in them, and then you have the security standing down there?
2: Well, I mean, the story behind the security, so I remember that conversation going into the final as well, was that there'd been this big conversation, and um, I can't remember who it was, but so there had been an agreement, apparently. They'd made an agreement with the Ike fans, the Ike fan groups, that they would not storm the court after the game. So if, if I won the game... They, the ceremony would be allowed to happen, and the F- Ike fans would not storm the court. And that's why the security were there because they were allegedly or supposedly there to stop the guys coming on the court when Ike won it. Um, now, I I think realistically, in everyone's heart of heart, everyone knew that wasn't going to happen. Um, and when they did win, and the, you know, obviously, you can see the the Ike fans on the court, and the images that you get as a result of that were incredible. It was um. You know, being down courtside and being there and just watching fans everywhere, it from an operational point of view and trying to organize the, the actual trophy ceremony, it must have been a nightmare. But at the same time, everybody's walking about with a big smile on their face because it's, you know, it's it, it seems that, that, like you said, the images you're going to remember probably as long as you cover basketball.
1: And, and then I guess we could call it the final minute... Uh, <laughs> WTF moments <laughs> um, you you had Robinson deflect the inbounds pass off Green for the Ike turnover with 54 seconds left and then Harris um, is stripped on the inbounds pass and he goes to Gladier who puts it in uh, and then the ball goes off Green's leg on the next inbounds and uh, and then you know then there was the the, the, the James block on the Cooper three. And then you had the inbounds pass where Robinson throws it to Cooper, who can't really collect it right away, and and uh, and Robinson saves it from going out of bounds, but it goes to James, and and then you have really the absolute boneheaded uh, uh, Mike Greenfall on Cooper taking the corner three yes. with five point eight seconds left, with nine uh, up five, um, and then and then Cooper goes and misses. Yeah, misses all three, but the first two definitely uh, was trying to make the third one. He, you know, obviously tried to. Uh, he missed on purpose to try to, yeah, uh, to try to get the ball back. Um, just you know, so much, and then you you also had all the reviews as well. You had the 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 referees going over to to make sure that they got the calls right. You know, who, uh, you know who you know who who'd the ball go off of. You know, whose ball was it? Just take us back through through that. You know that amazing. It, it just. Totally crazy final minute.
2: I just think it was part of the the, the mood of the game, really. You know, I these things happen in finals, especially as you get down to the end. And, and I guess Monaco had their chances, or they had they had you, you can say they had the opportunities to, to to find a way back into the game. But I think there was probably an even number of mistakes on both sides, and I think it's just a. Uh, it's probably I can only imagine as a player what it's like to focus and make the right decision in an in environment like that.
0: Yeah, and what did you think about Mike Green being the Final Four MVP? Because uh, you know you had Punter, who was good in both games. Sakota was good in both games. Um, Green in the semis only seven points, three assists, but then nineteen in the final, like you mentioned. Uh, what, what did you think about him being the the Final Four MVP? And did you think he he deserved
2: that? well if you have 19 in the final and you win the final it's you can't you can't disagree with it um as he said though there were several very good candidates i think looking back at it and re-watching it kevin punter was was even more deserving of it than i thought when i remember back then you know he he was a huge addition and remember that punter didn't start he came off the bench and played huge chunks of third quarters as well he was like a Almost like a two-headed snake with Manny Harris. Is that if one of them's not scoring, you're trying to guard the other one. And obviously, Shakota was was the man on that team. It was the, every time they needed him during the season, he was the guy that would get it done. You know, he was scoring most of his points in the fourth quarter the entire season. Um, and he was huge in both games. You know, maybe you don't remember him for the big shots down the stretch of games, but in the rhythm of a game when I needed a, a, a score, they would go to Shakota in every time. And he was, for me was the, the most consistent over the two games of the final four. But yeah, as you say, I, as you say, you, you can't really use hard to argue with Mike green because he, he has 19 in the final, but over the two yeah. games, I'd say Shakota is the more consistent.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's fair. And then the other thing was Shikoto uh, just his connection with that fan base. It seemed like whenever he hit a shot, it almost, you know, it just felt more valuable because of how crazy the crowd would go. Um, like I, I remember a three pointer he hit in the fourth quarter that like the roof came off the place.
2: Exactly, exactly. He was, was the talisman. So then that's what you, that's what your talisman needs to do in those big games is to hit the shots at the right time to to control the the flow of the game or the rhythm of the game. And he always came up with those shots.
0: Yeah. So one, one, one thing that I thought was really interesting watching this again now was, uh, Jeff on the broadcast at the very beginning, he mentions that Ike are the Cinderella and it's really funny to think of Ike as the Cinderella because nowadays, you know, they're winning trophies left and right. Uh, they went to the BCL quarterfinals last year and almost made it if, and they would have made it if Tyrese Rice didn't hit some incredibly clutch shots. And they seem to have just kind of flipped the narrative on themselves as a club. You know, now this is this is a place where you can go and you can win titles. Uh, what, what do you think this victory just kind of did for for Ike as a club?
2: Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. They've, they've been built off the back of it almost. They, they've, you know, domestically as well. They're winning Greek cups and they're reaching the finals of Greek cups regularly, and they they're always. You know, every year you're going to pick out Ike as a team that has the budget and has the players and the recruitment to um to be around the BCL Final Four, certainly later stages of the BCL. And the same in Greece, you know, they're gonna be top three there or thereabouts every season. Top two, top three every season as and if you know the season before the fight, the final. They weren't a consistent team, and they had several coaching changes, and weren't quite there, and went out early in the playoffs, and didn't look like a team that were are going to we're going to be this kind of this kind of club. In fact, and then, as you say, as a result of winning that, they've gone on to be a team that, that players will be looking at and saying, if I go there, I, I win silverware. But
1: let's kind of bring it back to the season to kind of uh, kind of draw to a close. Uh, um, obviously we had Howard St. Ruiz who was so dominant, uh, brilliant this year uh, before he left for CSK, you know, kind of, um, you know, probably one of the leading candidates for the MVP. Um, also had a co- coaching change which I, th- I think that some people might not actually realize, you know, going in from last season to this season. Um, and, and it's a team that also has, has, has really changed the face, uh, its face uh, during the season, you know, you had the Langford injury. You know, we've we've talked about it on the podcast a couple of times already. Uh, you bring in Zizis, you know, uh, and a couple other guys, um, you know, just to kind of stay on Ike this year because obviously they they will be playing in the. Uh, in the final eight, um, with the the new coach coming in from from last year, last couple of years he was at at, at Pauk, um, and and then uh, you know seeing a, a team very reliant on Saint um not necessarily always scoring, but you know does you know does so many things and was playing forty minutes a game and you know losing Langford that period, bringing in the new parts. What what have you thought about uh, this season for for Ike?
2: Well, I mean, the first thing to say is that I was excited by the coaching change because for Pauk, Papa Theodoro has, um, had them playing really nice basketball before he, before the move across. Um, so, you know, what, what well, he came with him was, a was a, a coach that I think was highly rated for a reason, or certainly by me, I don't know, you know, and, um, and the team that they this the way they started the season with with Ross and with Langford it was a really fun team to watch. And also, you know, it, it actually they became more of a Greek team. I know it, it's tough to say that because the the two thousand eighteen team had Mavridis, um Xanthopoulos, uh, Vasilopoulos and these and Laranzakis. And I remember I can't remember the exact number of it, but I remember reading um something Igor wrote before the final saying how many of those Greek players were born Within shooting distance of of that arena in in Athens, or grew up near it. But um, strangely, this team this year feels like it's more reliant from a scoring and a creation perspective on its Greek players. You know, so guys like Christy Koppoulos and, and Geekers, um and Yiannopoulos are a, a huge parts of the team. Um, you know, sure they, they were reliant on Sant Ross and, and Lankford, but the Greek guys. It felt, it felt more of a Greek team this year. Um, um, and then I'd say losing St. Ross was obviously a huge blow. He was affecting the game on both ends of the floor and more than anybody else in, in the competition this season. And it was an interesting decision that they took. And, and I thought it was quite a creative decision that they took. Instead of trying to replace him, instead of trying to bring in one or two players to try and fill the void that he left... They struggled for a bit after he left and they looked very poor in the two games that in the BCL straight after he left before they brought Zisius in but instead they, they kind of chose to to make a culture move instead of a, a roster filling move. So they you bring in Zisius and what comes with that is a coach on the floor and is a guy that instantly raises your standards and, and the way the players have to behave. So instead of filling a spot they, they've made everybody else better on the team. So and you know that that resulted in a Greek Cup win as well. So they, and it that team was looking like a a real tough one to stop in a in a totally different way. It's almost like a, a totally different team with the same players apart from one.
1: We we do have um, six of the eight teams in the in the final eight. We're still waiting to find out the other two teams. Uh, you know, obviously, Hapo Jerusalem, you know, we've talked about all season how, how strong they've been and they made some great additions. You know, Tenerife, the combination of Huertas and, and Shermandini has been fantastic all year. Uh, Nimbark has been, uh, fantastic with their, with their, uh, almost, uh, almost uncommon combination of veteran, uh, veteran domestic players and young Americans. Uh, may, maybe just uh, you know looking at the the remaining six or let's call it ni- uh, nine teams I guess if you want to f- you know fully you know call all out um, your thoughts going into into this final eight uh, we, of course we of course we, we don't know what these rosters are going to look like um, because they'll probably be changed. Uh, some more than others but uh, maybe just the culture that these clubs have been able to build up this year you know Nimbrook, you know finally getting you know past that stage Uh, and and uh, maybe just your thoughts going into we we all you know we know it's a long time away there's going to be a lot you know socially that's going to happen and obviously getting you'll be happy that sports gets back on but maybe just you know let's freeze it at this moment and take a look at what we have um, and look forward to the final four, what uh, final eight, what are your thoughts going into that one?
2: Well, I think the, the Ike Nimbrick is actually a good place to start because if you look at Nimbuk as a team fairly consistently for the, through the BCL, they've had the same backbone of domestic guys. So you'd be shocked if you don't see those guys come back and be there, be part of the team. Um, So you, you already have a rough idea that, Probably the coach and, and the backbone of that team will be similar, and you you could probably say that something that's similar for Ike too. You know, I, I'd imagine that people like you know, that Zizis will still be there, and somebody like uh, Langford would probably feel like there's some unfinished business there. So you can realistically see him being around and being part of that team. And the same with the with guys like Kikus and Christy Coppolis and and Yanopoulos. You'd expect those to be part of the the roster. So. That's a, a matchup you can already almost start looking forward to, um, which should, should be a really fun one. Obviously, they have history as two teams that played each other in the the playoffs before, and it went down to a Kevin Punter shot, um, and it's been close before. So you can you can imagine that one being um, really something to look forward to. And if if Nimble can get back to the kind of defensive team that they were, you know, everybody was. Very long, and everybody was able to kind of switch a bit or move around in the matchup zone. They could be a they could be a very different proposition for an Ike team that would look to attack matchups and try and pick on switches. So it could be a fun one to look forward to. Um, I remember the start of the season, Dave. Just to give you some credit on this one, you you picked out Hankins as um as a guy that was going to have a big season. Um, and he and he certainly did actually so actually how did you know that was that he was gonna play that well this year
1: um it no idea just i looked at i looked at his skill set and uh you know you don't see many big guys um that uh that can move around uh and run the floor like that you just don't see very many uh like that you know and and uh I, I mean, I I I didn't follow him at all. Obviously, he's, you know, super small school, um, D two or whatever, even smaller, and then, and then went yep. to Xavier, I think. But uh, yeah, just just the feeling of that type of guy, you know, high energy guy, um, you know, all, you know, any guy who who and who appreciates and 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 values playing defense.
0: Yeah, I think Dave really liked the fact that wasn't he national uh, player of the year for Division two?
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So those those guys who come from Division two, Emmanuel Terry's another one who when they when they win player of the year, you know that they're super talented guys. But also they come in with a big chip on their shoulder because they didn't go to a big college or, you know, come out of a major program like that. So I think I think that's kind of why Dave keyed in on Hankins early. Also, that was definitely part of it.
2: Well, it was a good call because he definitely has played the season with a chip on his shoulder. I I think he's also been a very good culture fit for a team like Nimburg. So if if you're going into a club that has that backbone of domestic players, maybe if you go in and try and be too alpha and too dominant, maybe it doesn't fit. But Hankins looks like away from the floor. He's a very laid-back, sort of fun-loving kind of person. So he seems to culturally fit with that group very well as well.
0: Yeah, and obviously we don't you know, we won't know what these teams look like completely. Uh, but would you who who did you kind of have as the favorite before the season got suspended when it did? Uh was it were you thinking Tenerife or maybe their loss to Ostend scared you a little bit? Where where were you at, you know, as of three and a half weeks ago when everything seemed somewhat normal?
2: Um, I was probably the same as just about everybody else in saying probably Jerusalem had to be favorites. Um, The team was, you know, Jerusalem is a, was a, is a, um, a a juggernaut really. So that depending on draw and depending on how they, how the route to the final or the final four would go, but they were looking like a real force. Um, Tenerife every year. And especially with Aaron White and the way the team, you know, they rebuilt and, put 12 new players in a roster and looked like they'd known each other their whole life after 10 minutes. Um, so they, you, ha, you can't write off a team like that. But then they also had a tough draw, you know, the next round. Darragoth are also looking like a very good team, but I, th- I think realistically Jerusalem were probably the favorites.
1: All right. Well, um, we we still have plenty of time to wait until – uh until we come back together again and uh talk about the final eight um maybe just uh deacon if there's anything that you have uh, left in the pipeline r- writing wise uh, maybe just uh maybe some of your favorite pieces this season for those who uh want to try to uh to <laughs> uh they're they're able to watch the classic games but who who might want to read some some nice long pieces uh, maybe what were some of your favorites this season to kind of close, get, kind of uh, pimp some of your stuff?
2: Well, I think to to finish the season, what I'm working on at the moment is is um almost throwing some credit towards teams like Jerusalem and Nimbo because it, Jerusalem had the the best offensive season in the regular season that we've ever had in terms of efficiency on the offensive end and offensive rating. So I'm gonna I'm gonna work on a breakdown of that. Um, if you if you do access social media there's been um the 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 two there's been a, there's been two assistant coaches Liam Flynn and and obviously Ryan Panone last season both putting out some great content about the way they've played this year so i think i'd like to turn that into a an article to give that team some credit and and the same for the same for Nimbuk in the way they were on the defensive end um so i'm going to i'm going to keep producing content about those guys in the in the next month um Favorite story of the season, um, I think it's probably still the interview with um with Pedro Callez and Rasta. That was was probably my, my feel good team of the season as well. The way they played and the the type of team they are that you seem to get in the BCL, which is one of those low budget um, overachieving teams that that find ways to compete by being creative with their recruitment and the way they the way they play. So that was the, that was probably my favorite story of the season. That from from my own perspective, that, you know, there's been a lot of great stuff on on the, um, the the story you wrote about the the Cuban players was also a lot of fun, Dave.
1: Cheers, sure, thanks. <laughs> um, all right, uh, Deacon Lloyd Smith, thanks for um, thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing uh, your thoughts. I hope, uh, and I imagine it probably was. I hope that you also did enjoy, you know, rewatching those games and 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 kind of having some of those uh, really. F- uh, fond memories uh, pop back in, the flashes, and and you know maybe you know the the little deafening sound that had you know kind of gotten you you'd, you had received you had gotten your, your full hearing back, and then you remember <laughs> remembered what it was like back then. So thanks for and re- reliving some of that uh, really exciting final four with us.
2: Yeah, absolutely, you know it's funny when the the hairs stand on the back of your neck for the <laughs> second time, and you're sat in your living room, you know.
1: Excellent. Okay. Thanks a lot. And uh, yeah, stay safe and uh, enjoy. Uh, enjoy. I don't know whatever sports we can find.
2: You too. You too. And thanks. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Austin.
0: All right, thanks again to Deacon Lloyd Smith for joining us on this week's show. Dave, it was a lot of fun to go back and watch this game. Uh such a high-scoring, fun game with a lot of twists and turns, especially at the end there. Uh the the WTF meltdown minute, I think we we were calling it. Um Really fun game overall, and, and cool to talk to Deacon about this since he was there in person in that crazy environment. Uh, what, what did you think about you know that game looking back on it now it's, it''s it's really you mentioned it as
1: well. It's really kind of weird to think about how Ike you know was really sort of the Cinderella. You know, when you, you you take their current situation, and, and you know, we talked about it a lot in the interview. So, uh, you know, that, that was really going into it and, 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 you know, and how they barely even made it out of the regular season, you know, miracle to get it, to get even into the quarterfinals. Uh, so, you know, that, that, it, it was great talking to to Deacon and, and I'm really happy also for him that he has such a, a vivid uh re, you know recall of everything um uh that happened there and uh spurred on obviously by watching the game and go watch it you know we talked about we talked about the game and uh but go watch you know you know sometimes we we say you know you know go watch this game and you know and, and really this is a f- this is a fun game to watch high scoring 194 points. Uh, you know, some spectacular, you know, plays, there's the amazing end. Um, so, so go back and watch it. And, and another thing you, um, you know, we've actually talked about this game a number of times over the life of this podcast, these two seasons, you know, we've had punter on, we had Hunter on, we had uh, Mike green on the show. Um, and, you know, so we've talked about this actually quite a bit. And, uh, you know, and to kind of see the the, you know, Green going to Strasbourg, Punter, you know, going to to Bologna, doing his magic there, you know, Hunter being an MVP candidate with Ike before they weren't a- able to make it to the uh, uh, to the final for uh, last year, um, so you know, seeing these guys, I'm gonna say younger days or anything like that, but you know, in there, you know, in previous seasons. Um, this has been a fun. I don't know if you want to call it exercise or whatever, but going through and watching these these guys, and uh, so it was it was a lot of fun, and, and it was fun to, uh, catching up with uh, Deacon on it, and uh, and and uh, you know letting the the you know maybe the hairs on the on your, on the back uh, of your of your head get also kind of you know peaked up uh, just thinking about the crazy atmosphere. I mean, you were there in that in that arena. Uh, uh, for a big game, I mean, it wasn't obviously necessarily this level, but you know, you gotta kind of give it a taste of it. So, um, yeah,
0: it was, it was it was good. Yeah, the Ike crowd is amazing. I definitely recommend watching this game just for that, for the Vince Hunter dunks and the crowd explosions afterwards. Um, yeah, some some really incredible moments. We we mentioned the green to Hunter dunk. Uh, when we talked to Deacon, one thing we didn't mention was Larenzakis threw an alley-oop to Hunter a few minutes later that was just as ferocious and, yeah, Ike really set the tone early and yeah, it was, it was a fun game and it was great to watch Monaco claw back. Uh, shout out to Paul Lacombe. We, d- we didn't mention him at all uh, during our conversation with Deacon, but he was excellent for Monaco, played great defense. Um, yeah, it was it was a great game overall. So it was really fun to, to go back and watch that again and to kind of relive that experience with Deacon. Uh, make sure you follow Deacon on Twitter at DLS Coaching and read his work on the official Champions League website championsleague.basketball he's been writing great stuff all season Dave any final thoughts from you before we wrap up this episode
1: you know just these last two weeks um, you know we, we've talked a lot about Ike over the course of this uh, this podcast uh, the life of this podcast the life of this competition um, but you know we haven't talked about Monica Monica, you know after this basically because they, they didn't compete in the competition after this but you think about it they they you know they. So you you think about it. They went to the Final Four two years in a row. Uh, you know, losing to an amazing Jordan Theodore in the uh, in the semis in sixteen seventeen, and then losing to this. Uh, you know this this really. If you you know go back and you think about the, the quality of this team. You know, Punter Hunter. Uh, green uh, Shakota you know uh, another fantastic team um, and so you really kind of have to if you go back to look at the first two seasons you really have to kind of uh, think about how great this uh, Monaco team was uh, over its two seasons in this competition where they reached the semifinals and then uh, and then went to the finals so that you know that was another thing to uh, to to kind of, uh, let's say, quote, relive is just really how great that that club was in this competition.
0: Yeah, for sure. They were great those first couple of years. Uh, really fun team. And, you know, like we had talked about, they were dominant in the regular season that year, 13 and 0 to start the year. Uh, so yeah, incredible season by Monaco, unfortunately for them, they came up just short in the final against that great Ike team. And yeah, we talked about it, you know, with Vince Hunter, Kevin Punter, those guys going on and and doing great things elsewhere. Uh, this, you know, and this Ike team just really kind of, turning itself into a powerhouse uh, and, you know, always a threat to win the Greek Cup, to win the BCL, uh, to win the Greek League even. So, yeah, great great to see that club rise up uh, through the years because, yeah, they have such a great fan base. Athens is a great city, a great basketball city. So it's been, been really great to watch them throughout the past couple seasons. All right, so that's going to do it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Deacon Lloyd-Smith for joining us on this week's show. Follow him on Twitter at DLS Coaching. We'll have another episode for you guys next week with a few more details on the final eight, which will be coming in September. Until then, have a good, safe week for Dave Hein over in Germany. My name is Austin Green, and this has been BCL Coast to Coast.